You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome to another episode of the Domecast. This is Jordan Schrader hosting today from the NNO, and uh, with me are Craig Jarvis, Colin Campbell, and Will Doran. Uh, we have some uh, late-breaking news here as we record late on Friday uh, that there's been a court ruling in the lawsuit that uh, pits Governor Roy Cooper against uh, the legislature and the legislative leaders. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the State of the State address and response earlier in the week. Uh, and we'll talk about former Governor Pat McCrory's job prospects, among other things. Uh, and, of course, we'll have headliner of the week at the end. Uh, but, Craig, uh, first of all, uh, wh- what does this ruling say? They uh, basically split on the law, right? But what's sort of the, the headline? Yeah, there were three three main issues. They split over it in terms of who won and who lost. And there's also dissenting op- uh, opinions from the judges on a couple of the issues. But first issue was uh, one that Cooper uh, won, which was – he had sued to stop this, the, the legislature's merging in the elections board and the ethics board and reducing his ability to make appointments to, the, to, the, to that board. Uh, the court ruled in his favor, uh, made a summary judgment ruling that threw out that uh, or that supported that claim. Um, Cooper lost on the, uh, the what's been in the headlines quite a bit, this nominations process, his ability to uh, pick cabinet members without any oversight, advice, and consent from the Senate. Uh, the court ruled that that was appropriate, that he hadn't shown any harm because they've been approving his appointments so far. And uh, um, he could always come back and uh, and make a claim if they if he does do that. Then the third one have to do, had to do with uh, exempt employees, kind of political appointees. The uh, legislature had, in, or under the McCrory administration, the number of political appointees who were not subject to uh, personnel protections had increased quite a bit. Then when he ended his term, the legislature uh, took a big chunk of those people and made them, uh, put them back under personnel protections. And they objected to that process, and that ruling went in uh, Cooper's favor as well. So the elections board uh, changes were ruled unconstitutional, right? So what, what what did they do with what did the law do with the elections board to to begin with here? Uh, well, my recollection is they uh, they took the elections board and and said it would disappear. I think am I right on that? And sort of yeah, merged it, it merged the, it with the. It's uh, a merging, but in one they yeah they it would it would go away. So yeah. there'd be this new body, this this the ethics board and the elections board. I forget what but they call it. But essentially, the composition of the ethics board, which is bipartisan, in that you have an equal number of Republicans and Democrats, and they mm-hmm. take uh, I think six out of eight votes to do anything. So it, it it sort of makes it less partisan, but at the same time, it also makes it harder to do things because you'd have to get both parties uh, to agree on any of the rulings. Under the Current law, they existed before the legislature's uh, actions. The, the governor's party controlled the uh, elections board, right? Yeah, so, so what would happen under this? So the original elections board system is that the governor's party gets a majority on both the state board of elections and the county board of elections. Under this, that whole system goes away. You merge the two boards, and you essentially have the composition of the current ethics commission uh, serving as the uh, elections board. So instead of essentially the Republican Party or the Democratic Party getting to decide, uh, for example, early voting schedules uh, and other sort of election policies, it ends up being uh, you'd have to 
get six votes out of eight on a four and four split between the two parties. So essentially both parties have to agree or if they don't agree on the decision, then it ends up going to a judge um, and uh, gets sort of run up the line that way. So the court ruled on that provision that uh, that was just too much meddling in the executive power that, you know, that the governor had more, had more leeway to do that. And, uh, and so that was, they had overreached. That's why it was unconstitutional. Okay. All right. And uh, we're just learning about that ruling. So um, we uh, may have more to talk about next week on it. Um, but uh, Craig, you also covered the state of the state this week. Uh, it was the first state of the state address for Governor Roy Cooper. So, uh, what did first of all, what was his uh, reception like in the legislature before we get into what he actually had to say? Well, it seemed you know well received. I mean, there's a mixture of the Democrats who were kind of heartily uh, uh, applauding much of what he had to say, and then there was respectful applause. Uh, you know, it was a 40 minute speech. It wasn't one of the longer ones. I think uh, his predecessor went twice as long last time. Um, but it was kind of echoing his campaign themes and what we've been seeing in his budget and other uh, other avenues. Just to, you know, a more prosperous North Carolina is what he is what he says he wants, which is expanding Medicaid um, and uh, you know that that kind of thing. Um, the environment, protecting the environment, uh, tax cuts for the middle class, that sort of thing. Um, so. Although, so it was kind of a friendly tone, although right off the bat, and he made a point of underlining the fact that he was bringing it up right off the bat, was uh, HB2, of course. He said that that has got to be repealed. We have to do something uh, to, to end this, uh, I forget the word he used, but basically a blight on the, uh, a stain on the state, or a dark cloud, I think it was, was passing over the state because of HB2. Something had to happen, and it needed to happen fast. So that was kind of the, uh, that was kind of the, uh, the, the bottom line. Okay. And, uh, of course, there's a Republican reaction. And this year the response was given by uh, Phil Berger, the Senate leader. Uh, so, Will, what, what did Senator Berger have to say in response? Yeah, this wasn't a uh, the kind of response that most people might be used to from a presidential State of the Union where someone gets on TV right after the president's speech and, uh, you know, from the opposition party and talks about, uh, their take on it. Um, Senator Berger actually uh, recorded uh, his speech uh, before uh, Cooper gave his speech, and it was really intended not to be as much of a, uh, I guess, a, a repudiation of you know the exact points that Cooper made, but more just kind of a uh, almost a greatest hits list of uh, what the Republican General Assembly has been been able to do in the last six years, and you know focus on some of their own accomplishments. Um, uh, you know, touched on things like um, erasing the budget shortfalls that we had during the recession, turning those into a surplus, you know, some of the job creation that we've seen during the economic recovery, tax cuts. Um, he also talked about teacher pay, which is something that I looked into for PolitiFact. Um, he said that in the last three years, uh, the Republicans have given teachers an average of a fifth or have given the average teacher a 15 percent raise. Um, and I looked into that, and uh, we gave that a mostly false uh, from PolitiFact. Um, first, you have kind of the issue that he's a little bit cherry-picking the data there. You know, the GOP has been writing budgets for the last six years, uh, not just three years. And if you look over uh, all six of those years, salaries have gone up by around 8%, so a um, little over 1% a year on average. Um, if you look at the last three years, he's closer to being right, um, which is why he uh, 
didn't get just a pure false on the on our truthometer. He got a mostly false because over the last three years, it's been um, over a 10% raise, which isn't 15%, like he said, but it is certainly something. And you know, teachers definitely have noticed their paychecks uh, growing a little bit. So. So what did he cite that uh, made him uh, say 15, that it was his rationale for saying 15%? Yeah. Um, if you look at it, um, basically the way that uh, this, that teachers get paid is uh, they the state gives a base salary, and then basically every single school district in the state gives a local supplement. There's a handful of some tiny districts out in western North Carolina, basically, that don't. Um, but I think it's 108 of the 115 give... Uh, supplements. So, you know, uh, salaries aren't all on the uh, legislative. It's not that all their responsibility, but um, he he cited a document that only looked at uh, what the legislator had done uh, with base salaries. And even if you look at that, um, while it says it was a 15% raise, uh, it includes things that weren't actually really raises like a bonus last year or um, a couple of years ago, taking uh, longevity pay, the bonus that uh, veteran teachers got, and uh, getting rid of that, but kind of turning it into a raise in their base salary, uh, you know, so kind of, you know, something where pay didn't necessarily go up, but it got counted as a raise anyway. So there's some little accounting tricks in there like that, um, which was also part of the reason, you know, that, that factored into the mostly false rating. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Well, uh Colin, you wrote about uh, former Governor Pat McCrory this week and uh, uh, his job prospects. So how are they looking? Yeah, so this uh, ended up making national headlines. McCrory, about a couple weeks ago, uh, was on this uh, Evangelical Christian Group's uh, podcast. Evidently, he had recorded it a while back uh, while visiting Orlando, Florida, uh, and was asked sort of how his next steps were going. And he said... Uh, that he was finding that some people who were interested in hiring him were actually reluctant because of the backlash over House Bill 2, uh, that he'd talked to some uh, folks on the academic side, um, and they were sort of hesitant because they worried that there would be student protest if he was hired uh, for some sort of position afterwards. Uh, he did stress in an interview with us uh, that he's not unemployed. Um, it's not that he can't get a job. It's just that some employers are reluctant uh, and told us that um, he's actually doing some consulting work uh, as well as some work on advisory boards. But he declined to say exactly who he's working for or who he's applied for uh, jobs with. He did say he's uh, having ongoing discussions with the Trump administration. So far, none of that has resulted in uh, anything that he's uh, accepted as a job. Uh, but it's sort of uh, interesting to see the reaction uh, to HB2 impacting his job search in any way. Uh, a lot of people are seeming to be stressing some schadenfreude about that on uh, social media, folks who are uh, unhappy with how uh, McCrory's tenure ended with uh, respect to HB2. Uh, so that's kind of where he stands. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what, what he announces in the coming months, uh, if anything, that he's up to. You talked to some former governors uh, about... Uh what advice they have for Macquarie, and what their own uh, experiences were like after leaving the governor's office. So who, do, who did you talk to? Yeah, so I talked this week with uh, former governors Bev Perdue, the Democrat who served from uh, 2009 through right before McCrory took office in 2013, uh, as well as Jim Martin, who was uh, governor in the, the late 80s and early 90s and as a Republican. Um, and, and both of them said, you know, they really didn't have a whole lot of trouble uh, coming out of uh, being the governor. They had a number of offers that uh, came their way in the, the months following. 
Uh, Bev Perdue had uh, gone almost straight from the governor's mansion to uh, one semester stint as a, a fellowship at Harvard University's uh, School of Government, where she did a little bit of teaching, uh, went from there back here to do essentially the same thing at Duke Sanford School of Policy, which I should note uh, had a student petition uh, encouraging them not to hire uh, Pat McCrory in any sort of position uh, because they were concerned about his record being against the uh, values of the, the School of Public Policy. Uh, no indication if yet uh, whether he would be in the running there or not. Um, Jim Martin, who I also talked to, obviously has been out of office for quite a while. He's, uh, I think, in his early 80s now, so he's pretty much retired at this point. Uh, but he, when he first left office, uh, went directly to lead a research center that was part of Carolina's Medical Center uh, down in the Charlotte area and did that for a couple of years, then ended up being the lobbyist uh, for that healthcare system that serves the Charlotte area. Uh, and of course, then was back in the news a couple of years ago when he uh, led an investigation into some of the uh, paper class uh, scandal stuff over at uh, UNC Chapel Hill. So he's had an, an interesting time uh, of it. He told me he wasn't comfortable giving McCrory advice in the media. He says he's got a good relationship with McCrory himself and uh, would, would just as soon talk to him in person if, if McCrory ever asked for advice. Uh, Purdue said uh, that McCrory should hang in there, that he's going to land somewhere, that it's, it's going to work out, that you know enough people are, are looking to hire a former governor even if if, uh, you know, they have something on their record that might be unpopular in some quarters, that he'll land on his feet uh, one way or the other. Well, the uh, the law that is the reason that a lot of the people are so interested in uh, a former governor's prospects uh, is, of course, HB2, as you mentioned. And uh, we had a little bit of a development on that this week. Um, I don't know if you would think this put the final nail in the coffin uh, of HB2 repeal or not, but there was an attempt to to uh, repeal that uh, died on the floor, right? Yeah, so this was uh, pretty much on the um, Democrat side. Uh, they were upset, I guess, that there hadn't been much movement on having any committee hearings on really any of the uh, HB2 repeal proposals. So what House Democratic Leader Darren Jackson did uh, was to run an amendment to a bill about banking regulations um, to, that would, would have just simply been a HB2 repeal tacked onto something about banking. Um, and that uh, did not go very well in the House. Um, David Lewis, the House Rules Chairman, who was uh, presiding over the chamber at this point, uh, ruled that it was out of order because uh, something about HB2 would be irrelevant to uh, the banking regulation bill. And, and the House does have rules that say, you know, if you're going to add something to a bill when it gets to the floor, it has to be something that is uh, related to the uh, provisions that are already in the bill. Um, and so Lewis argued that that was not the case. Uh, Jackson's uh, counterpoint to that was that uh, because some banks are angry about HB2, that it's relevant to uh, banking regulations. Uh, and so the end result was it was pr pretty much a party line vote uh, with Democrats um, voting to overturn the decision about whether to consider this amendment and then Democrats or uh, Republicans rather uh, voting to kill the um, amendment and to agree with essentially Lewis's interpretation that this really wasn't relevant um, and, and wasn't eligible to be considered uh, in, in this particular context. Now, as that's going on, uh, I also talked this week with uh, Representative Chuck McGrady, who's the Republican who filed the compromise bill and has sort of been the the point guy on the Republican side for trying to figure out whether some sort of compromise can be worked out on HB2. He says he had really no updates to report, that um, they're still uh, stuck over this position, uh, provision about a referendum vote on local non-discrimination ordinances. Uh, the governor is not going to let uh, Democrats support the bill, and he's not going to support the bill if that's in there. Uh, McGrady believes that there's really no other 
uh, option to get enough Republican support. Um, and McGrady actually was interviewed today, Friday, by the Washington Post about uh, sort of the deadlines surrounding House Bill 2 and the NCAA. Obviously, we're well into March Madness now, and uh, House Bill 2 is the reason that uh, some of the first rounds are being played in Greenville, South Carolina, uh, about an hour over the border um, instead of in Greensboro. And in uh, fact, some lawmakers now want to uh, go after the NCAA. Yeah, that, that was this. another yeah. thing this week. I almost forgot about that. That was the bill from Representative Mark Brody, who's a Republican uh, from down near in the Charlotte area. Uh, he wants to. He proposed a bill this week that would uh, require the legislature to essentially file an IRS complaint about the ACC and the NCAA. Basically, the argument being that uh, they have nonprofit status. Um, the IRS does not allow you to necessarily be a lobbying group uh, and maintain nonprofit status. Uh, so they're arguing that uh, essentially by boycotting North Carolina over House Bill 2, that that constitutes lobbying. Uh, the NCAA put out a statement sort of disagreeing with that interpretation, that, that what they're doing uh, shouldn't be considered lobbying. No sense of really whether that bill is going to go anywhere or not. Uh, the other interesting thing in that bill was uh, sort of the impact on university chancellors and other uh, university officials who serve on boards for th- uh, different intercollegiate uh, associations like the ACC, like the NCAA, uh, those folks would be required to disclose any votes they made on those boards for the sports organizations uh, to the Unity Board of Governors. Um, and the reason they're putting that in there is because uh, last year when the ACC uh, member schools chancellors uh, got together to vote on whether to move sporting events out of North Carolina, um, chancellors from UNC and NC State were actually on that board uh, and were involved in that vote, but wouldn't say publicly after the fact how they voted, whether they, they as North Carolina university chancellors had voted to move sporting events out of North Carolina or whether they'd opposed it, they wouldn't say uh, either way it went. So that obviously upset some legislators. So that's one thing that we've got going on. Meantime, uh, as a couple of Republicans are essentially trying to stick it to the NCAA. Uh, others are trying to uh, work out some sort of compromise by which we don't end up losing all of our NCAA events for the next uh, six or so years. Um, and the deadline for that is fast approaching. The interview I saw with Chuck McGrady today indicated that he felt like there was about another week or so left for any meaningful action to occur, and he did not sound at all confident um, that that was going to happen in that time frame. And if it doesn't, he said he's going to move on and work on other things. And uh, if the, the one guy who is really trying to get a compromise decides that it's time to throw in the towel and, and move on, then I think that tells you that we may not see much more action on HB2 this session. All right. And uh, you, you were all over the place this week because I need to ask you about two other things real quick. Okay. Uh, very, very fast. And everybody else can jump in and uh, keep, keep Colin from monopolizing the podcast. So one is the tax uh, plan that uh, came out this week. And the other one is uh, something you wrote about Senator Berger's Facebook page. So uh, let's we'll start with the, the policy stuff. So yeah. uh, what, what happened? Uh, what did the Senate and the House come out with uh, in terms of a tax plan this week? Yeah, so this was uh, sort of the annual uh, let's roll out some new tax cuts uh, press conference and press releases this week. Obviously, we've seen a, a pattern of this for, for several years now with the Republican leadership. Every time it comes budget time, there's usually some sort of tax uh, cut offered up. And this year, you've got sort of two competing plans. One is the Senate. The Senate is the biggest by far. Uh, You cut the rate uh, on both personal income taxes and corporate income taxes. 
uh, at the same time, you're raising the standard deduction uh, for people who are, are filing that way and, and therefore pay no taxes on the first. Uh, I think in the Senate plan would be about $20,000 of their income if it's a married couple filing jointly. All the complete numbers are, are in the story on our website. I'd uh, hate to quote numbers off the top of my head since I've had difficulty wrapping my <laughs> head around them to begin with. Uh, but sort of the upshot is that the Senate is, is touting their plan as a billion dollars worth of what they termed uh, tax relief uh, going in large part to uh, lower and middle class families in, in their interpretation of it. Uh, but you also have some, some corporate tax uh, decreases, and that's uh, attracting some opposition from the Democratic Party and some others on the left that say that there's no way to really do that without uh, cutting back on education and uh, other key services. Uh, the Senate Republicans say that uh, they can do this and they can stick with the, the teacher raises that they've already committed to and some of the other uh, funding priorities they have. The House has a much less drastic tax plan. Um, theirs would not change the rate for either um, personal or corporate income taxes. Uh, it would uh, raise the standard deduction, but not quite as much as the Senate plan. Um, and it would make some other sort of minor tweaks to business taxes in a way that uh, the House leadership feels like would be uh, beneficial to uh, particularly small businesses. seems like both chambers, if I'm not mistaken, were pitching it as uh, beneficial to the middle class, if that's right, which to me was in direct response to the governor <coughs> who's been campaigning <coughs> and putting that in his budget uh, all along, that, that he's, gonna, he's tired of tax cuts for the corporate for the wealthy, he's one, he wants to help out the middle middle class. So I thought that was maybe a direct reference to that. Yeah, I think I saw something on the uh, the Senate plan. They were saying um, what that ninety nine percent of North Carolinians would either see a tax cut or just not pay taxes at all. Yeah, under it. Um, I think there's only the one you know small type of earner who you know who wouldn't see any. Changes. Yeah, and I think the big um, sort of debate between Republicans and Democrats on this tax issue is if the Democrats were in charge, uh, what they would really like to do is do things with tax credits, bring back the earned income tax credit, do like a child care tax credit, and, and approach it that way so it's more targeted at uh, specific populations. Uh, the Republicans uh, like to look at it from the rate standpoint. Um, they would rather uh, lower the rate that everybody pays as a percentage. Uh, at the same time, you're increasing the standard deduction, which could conceivably be of benefit to everybody. So while the bulk of that benefit may go to people at the lower or middle income uh, part of the spectrum, um, everybody kind of gets something out of it, whereas with the, the Democrats' uh, approach with t credits, it's a little bit more targeted, and if you're on the upper end, you may not get anything at all. And they pitched it as being a step on the way to eliminating income taxes altogether. At least that's how I read the uh, Yeah, that was, it was in the Senate in the release. Senate side, yeah, right? I, don't, I don't know if the House is as, as gung-ho about uh, making that happen in the, the near term, but certainly the Senate is making that priority to sort of be one of those states that has no income taxes. Um, and, and that would be is particularly interesting this year in light of the fact that uh, both the House and the Senate have indicated that they don't really want to do much with sales taxes this year. We've seen uh, in past years the expansion of sales taxes to cover things like car repairs and movie tickets. Um, when I asked this week, they basically said that, uh, really on the Senate side, that there was no plans to uh, broaden the base, uh, in, and that's not part of the approach to paying for these income tax cuts. The other uh, talking point, uh, political talking point that occurred to me anyway is uh, they're saying this would be a billion dollars in savings. Was that what you said? Yeah, and it, theirs didn't break down in the estimates they provided. So some of that billion dollars, as I understand it, would probably be on the corporate side with mm -hmm. the rate cut there. 
Uh, some of that would go to uh, sort of personal income tax players, but there wasn't really a, a good estimate, at least not that was provided by Senate leadership, as to uh, how much would go to which side. Well, the Republicans were quick to point out in <clears throat> McCrory's budget was a, a billion dollars additional spending over the yeah, current Cooper's budget. budget. Yeah, so I could the, just see that as a useful talking point. You know, yeah. where he's spending a billion that we would save. Yeah, and that's you know something I think we're going to see as the budget process goes along. These uh, two tax plans are likely to show up in in the House in the Senate's budget when they come out. Uh, then, of course, there will be negotiations between the two of them, uh, and they'll come out with probably something that's in the middle between what the Senate wants to do tax-wise and what the House wants to do. Uh, and, of course, the question is whether uh, Cooper will be able to have enough leverage to uh, push things a little bit in the direction he wants to as far as the balance between uh, taxes and spending goes. And he certainly hasn't been uh, afraid from the minute he took office to engage the legislature. In fact, we had the first veto this week as well. He vetoed the uh, a bill which would uh, have restored partisan judicial elections and uh, uh, the legislature is pretty confident that they can override that veto, and I think they probably can. But, yeah, I think uh, the votes were there. It was, it was a weird one on the House side because the House is where – uh, to the extent any of Cooper's vetoes are not going to be overridden, it would happen in the House just because the Republican caucus is not as uh, tight-knit as they are in the Senate. The first vote on that partisan election bill uh, was, uh, I think, below the threshold to have the three-fifths majority required. But then they voted on again after it came back from the Senate with only some minor changes, and suddenly the Republicans who'd voted against it the first time uh, were suddenly for it. And now on that second vote, uh, the House Republicans had a veto-proof majority. Yeah, that's right. There was a handful of Demo uh, Republicans who voted against it the first time, and I don't know what changed their mind. <laughs> Senate did some kind of tweaking. Yeah, it'll be worth asking what uh, what changed in that week or two between when the bill first showed up in the House and when it came back to the House. Yeah, so that's an interesting issue. And it's actually, the bill was just filed Thursday uh, that would take a Mecklenburg County District Court uh, district and turn it into three districts instead of one judge, uh, three judges. And uh, their hope, the hope there is that uh, they can elect a Republican in a heavily Democratic. And that was the county. quote of the week from Jeff Tart, right? You yeah. talked to him about that and yeah, you I asked said, him I about see, the motivation. I see for this it. bill, and is this because of the workload? He said, no, it's straight up politics. Yeah. All right. And of course, politics the Democrats played as well. Uh, Senator Berger's Facebook page. So real quick, uh, Colin, what uh, what did you write about at the Facebook page? Yeah, so we, we talked some about his uh, social media last week about uh, his use of uh, altered headlines on Facebook. This week we were looking into sort of who runs the Facebook um, because uh, it, it's sort of unclear from the way it's set up exactly whether the responsibility lies with Berger's campaign or with his uh, government office staff. Uh, and we basically found out that uh, the government staff is posting to the Facebook page, uh, even though the Facebook page also includes a big donate button that says, you know, click here to support uh, Phil Berger's campaign. And when I asked them about that, they said that they're uh, careful in distinguishing essentially who does what, that the people who are paid by the government or in his official Senate office, they're doing uh, posting things that are official business, things like press releases, uh, other sorts of information, news articles. Uh, meanwhile, to the extent that there's any campaign stuff on there, that's handled by people who are actually working for his campaign. And in the words of uh, Amy Off, the spokeswoman for Berger, there is no overlap uh, between those two. And what do other politicians do? Is this unusual? Yeah, this is unusual, and this is kind of why it stuck out to us, is that uh, lots of politicians obviously have fairly active Facebook and Twitter uh, presences, 
Uh, and the majority of them have separate ones. So if you look at uh, House Speaker Tim Moore or Governor Roy Cooper or the Attorney General Josh Stein or also the Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest, they actually have two separate accounts. Uh, and so if you look at one account, you're seeing what their campaign is posting. If you look at the other one, you're seeing what the either the government agency they're in charge of or people in their uh, office who are sort of taxpayer-funded positions are posting. And uh, that's sort of how they keep them separate. So this is kind of an unusual model. Uh, and it's one where there really isn't a whole lot of guidance on whether this is uh, appropriate or not. Uh, the State uh, Ethics Commission, the Board of Elections, uh, on campaign finance stuff really has not offered a lot of guidance on uh, how you separate your campaign social media from your uh, official government social media. And so it'll be interesting to see uh, in the future whether there's any uh, attempt to clarify that so it's it's more clear how uh, people are supposed to run these things. Okay. All right. Well, let's take a quick break and come back with Headliner of the Week. Stay with us. your headliner of the week who is your headliner of the week who is your headliner of the week headliner of the week and we're back with headliner of the week where we decide who the most interesting person place or thing uh in the headlines this week was uh craig who's your headliner of the week Charles Barkley. I'm not a, I'm not the biggest basketball fan in the world, but I, I did have the Syracuse somebody or other game on last night. And during a break, they uh, played a uh, tape of Coach K uh, making some snide remarks or, you know, sarcastic remarks about HB2 and why the, you know, because they were down there in Greenville, South Carolina, instead of uh, Greensboro, North Carolina, because the NCAA pulled out uh, over HB2. And um, after they played the the tape of um, Coach K, they went back to Barkley, and he just kind of unloaded on the state, saying discrimination in any form is inappropriate. And it's a very bad thing when you've got a basketball game on national television, and you're just one of the 50 states, and you're getting slammed by, by uh, big stars. Okay. Charles Barkley. That's probably a first nomination for Charles Barkley. I don't recall that we've ever uh, incorporated him. Uh, <laughs> Kenny Smith, who who I guess was a a Tar Heel player too, uh, I don't know who he went on to play for professionally, but he was uh, he he was next to Barkley and made some some similar remarks. HB two has brought people in that you wouldn't think uh, would be interested in North Carolina politics. Montel Williams, Montel, uh, yeah, we've had uh, I don't know any number of it goes on. on Yeah, we have a lot of new friends. Lena Dunham was here last Uh, year. Yeah, we we've gotten a parade of interesting celebrities that suddenly now care about our politics. All right, well, Charles. Barkley in the hat for Headliner of the Week. Colin, who's your headliner? I'm going with a sort of a more general concept of uh, left lane slowpoke drivers. Um, this is uh, out of a bill this week filed by uh, State Senator Jeff Tart uh, that would uh, crack down on people who uh, pull into the left lane and they pass somebody and then they just stay there and they aren't going terribly fast. Uh, which is an aggravation to uh, lots of drivers, including apparently state legislators who spend a lot of their time driving across the state because they have to come to rally every week. Uh, and Tart is one of those. He's from down in the, the Charlotte area. So his bill would uh, make it a $200 fine if you're caught. Uh, in, I think the terminology is impeding traffic by staying in the left lane, uh, not going above the speed limit, 
um, and not moving over when somebody clearly wants to pass in the left lane. Apparently, it's a safety issue where if somebody is hogging the left lane, then people are passing in the right lane, or they're tailgating, or they're getting road rage, um, and that can sometimes lead to accidents. So that's sort of the rationale behind that, in addition to the fact that uh, it's something that aggravates legislators, and they want to do something about it. Yeah, some legislators may have been late for uh, meetings, maybe because of uh, a slowpoke driver in the left lane. I don't know. but uh, Okay, so slowpoke drivers are... Uh, in the hat for headliner of the week, along with Charles Barkley. Uh, Will, who's your headliner of the week? Well, speaking of slowpoke drivers, I'm going with Jeff Tart, the sponsor of that bill, um, because uh, as, as Craig also talked about earlier, you know, he, he was also behind the bill to uh, kind of slice up the judicial districts in Charlotte, you know, just unapologetically political <laughs> great quote there um you know i think a lot of people are really keen in on the driver bill he also has sponsored a bill um uh, that a lot of craft beer people are looking into uh it would raise the limit um uh that uh breweries can brew themselves before they're forced to sign up with a distributor uh that's a push that we've written about that the charlotte observer's written about um kind of being led by some charlotte breweries there so I don't know if he just had some extra shots of espresso in his drinks this week or what, but he has been a busy guy. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, he is my headliner of the week. All right. Jeff Tart in the hat for headliner of the week, along with Charles Barkley and Slowpoke Drivers. Uh, well, it is March Madness, so I think we have to go with basketball. Uh, would have been better to have a college basketball reference, I guess, for this. But uh, uh, where did he go to college? Where did Buckley uh, go to college? Where did he go to college? Uh, Auburn. Auburn. Okay, good. I'm glad wow. somebody knows. <laughs> I'm glad somebody knows this. Uh, uh, since it's March Madness, I think we have to go with the basketball one this week. And uh, so Charles Barkley is Ooh. our headliner of the week. Uh, Go Tigers? Tigers? Yeah. 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 Uh, all right. Uh, that's enough for Domecast. Uh, we'll see you next week. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.